6: Amari, Christian, Skyler, Caitlin, Loretta, Jordan,
5: Antonio, Eddie,
7: and the Tom Sumner Program.
0: Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow,
7: and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. we got a good one in store today, Um, an interesting one, to be sure. We're going to be uh, kind of all over the place, starting, uh, well, in the third half of our three-hour tour. We're going to talk with um, New York Times best-selling cookbook author Mark Scarborough, but about a very, very different project. He's got a, a new memoir called Bookmark. How the great works of Western literature effed up my life. It's really called that. Anyway, we'll be talking with uh, Mark during the third half of our three hour tour. In the middle, the second hour, we're going to talk with, uh, and this was, is also somewhat of a memoir, uh, but an interesting story to be sure, called American Time Bomb Attica Sam Melville and A son's ans- uh, Search for Answers, and it has its roots in the um, uh, turbulent uh, 1960s, and we'll get into all that. But first, we're going to start this hour with uh, a look back even further than that. My um, guest this hour is um, a best-selling writer of history and historical fiction, after uh many years as a trial and appellate lawyer. His new book is uh, called The New Land, and he joins me by phone. His name is David O. Stewart. David, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks very much for having me.
7: Um, David, I can't help asking a little bit because so much of uh, uh, your historical writing uh, revolves around the founding of uh, of America or, or the United States um, is is this story kind of a prequel to that
2: it it works a little that way uh, my uh, it's the story is really inspired by my mother's family uh, which did come over relatively early I have lots of ancestors who showed up very late but these folks arrived in the 1750s. Um, I haven't looked at that period so much, although I did have to in my recent book on George Washington, because uh, I thought his early years were very important to his growth. Uh, so, you know, there's history is a continuum. You know, wherever you start, it turns out you got to go back and, and pick up some of the things to explain how people got where they got. So, you, you know, you, you, you just dive in where it feels like the... The story is going to comfortably start.
7: And, and I was going to ask if, if, um, if when you're, if you're writing history, if there's, you know, what what happens that makes you say,
3: hmm,
7: I'll go back even further. <laughs> what is it that's, that attracted you to writing historic novels?
2: Well, the first novels I did were uh, sort of a little bit what-if novels, uh, looking at unexplained moments in history. One was the John Wilkes Booth conspiracy, another was an episode in Babe Ruth's career, a third involved the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, and things that are not well explained, and I thought they were fascinating and could maybe explain them, but... You know, they aren't well explained because there aren't good records about it, so you have to be willing to make it up, and that means a novel. That's fiction. Um, And that was great fun. Uh, They're the deception books. The first one's the Lincoln Deception. But for this one, uh, one, which is the beginning of a trilogy also, uh, it was the stories that, frankly, my mother told me more than 60 years ago, and they were, they captured my imagination. I was a history mad kid, and I needed to explore them as best I could in terms of records, which I did, but you know, so much of history happens not in the records. You know, what people were thinking, what they really said, you know, the kinds of pain that they really felt. You know, most people don't write it down, or if they wrote it down, it doesn't survive. So that's where the novelist can explore those ideas and those feelings uh, in, in a way that it, I find very satisfying. So that, that's what I was trying to do here. The facts of the what my ancestors went through are sort of the guardrails that, you know, sort of show where the story is going. But so much of it is really uh, at, uh, from my imagination, from trying to come up with what that world was like and what it would have felt like and smelled like and tasted like.
7: You know, it's such a great way to look at history, David, because so often history is taught through names, dates, places, and it's kind of dry. It's when you dig in and try to explore the stories where history really comes to life and, and where it has any real meaning for people now.
2: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think a, a real flaw in historical teaching is making people memorize dates and, you know, the four four causes of the Civil War or whatever. You need to know some of that, but what you really, what captures people is the story. You know, what was happening to, the, happening to these people? And, you know, something that I've felt very much is, you know, we, We have all these fantasy novels and science fiction novels that create new worlds, and and they can be great, but, you know, and this is not a new thought with me, but, you know, the past is a foreign country. (laughs) We we can't be there. We we have to imagine it, and we have some clues. You know, we've got some buildings that survived. We've got people who wrote about it, so we can do part of it, but it's a great exercise in trying to... Imagine other lives, and I think that that's what we look for in literature, and that's um, that's the fun part for me.
7: David, I, I find a couple of things interesting: the fact that um, this the story revolves around a family that leaves England to get away from basically army inscription, and. It. it um, and They, well, they leave and, Germany. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got that wrong. I, I don't know why I thought they left England. I guess so yeah. many people were. Um, but it, it um, yeah, because it was about serving with the Hessian army and so on. Exactly. And they end up in Maine before it was even Maine why that location and there's and there's another element too because they get here and find war anyway
2: yeah it, it's it, it's a fascinating exercise to explore these lives and I don't think it's much different from what a lot of immigrants experience you know the, uh, frankly the the German who came over with my mother's ancestors um, got scammed. <laughs> they got told that Maine was, you know, beautiful, sunny, uh, had great uh, farmland, and, you know, was just going to be the uh, land of milk and honey. Uh, and, you know, Maine's a tough place to make a living. Uh, and uh, <laughs> they were just, uh, you know, tricked. Uh, and, and that's not uncommon. I mean, we, we a lot of immigrants come here with with false promises throughout our history, and, uh, you know, they, they make the best of it, uh, and, and that's what, what has to happen. And to be honest, and I tried to portray this, they think they're probably getting tricked too um, because it, it just sounds too good, and, and they're not stupid. But the life they're leaving is, plays a huge role because they are so dissatisfied with it. And you know, I have a lot of immigrant ancestors, not just this group. And you know, they all left because they wanted to get away. Uh, and you know, I think that's a that's the universal thing. It's hard to leave a country, and if you do it, it's because you've got good reasons.
7: It's almost like a pre-revolution uh, or pre-colonial um, version of the out-of-towners. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean. There's,
2: I, I'm people, kidding. People but. voting with their feet. Well, people voting with their feet.
7: Um, it, was there something particular about that region, either from history or from your own history, that caused you to want to set it, set them down there? Or is that just someplace people were landing? Yeah.
2: Uh, you know, that's where this particular fellow who was a real estate developer in the 1750s wanted that he had land. Of course, it turned out he actually didn't have good title to land, so, but he, he pretended he had title, and, uh, and so he recruited uh, settlers. There was an attitude among uh, the English who first came to the uh, uh, East Coast. Uh, that they wanted to get German settlers. There was a general attitude that the Germans were poor, um, they worked hard, and they didn't make trouble. Uh, you know, my aunt- Irish ancestors were, you know, feared because they were pretty well-known troublemakers. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the, the Germans not so much. So that was sort of the cliché of the day. Uh, I mean, it was an interesting thing to me, you know, George Washington's uh, brother tried to recruit a group of German settlers to come and replace his slaves. Uh, You know, and so so that was something that the people who owned the land did. I mean, they had this great asset of the land, but unless somebody was using it productively, uh, it, it, it was just a burden.
7: My guest is uh, David Stewart, the author of The New Land, and and I forgot to mention that it's uh, uh, book one of the Overstreet Saga, and I want to find out what that's all about, talk about that, and this book some more with David. But, David, we have a short break coming up. Uh, can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more? You bet. All right. All um, right. If you're listening to us on uh, WFOV 92one LPFM in Flint, they are a broadcast service of the uh, Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my friend Paul Herring. We're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when... Uh, When we go to break, if you're uh, streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. And we'll be back to talk more about the new land with uh, David Stewart after uh, a few messages. And don't forget, coming up tomorrow, it's uh, Armchair Politics our uh, weekly roundtable and uh, we'll have Jan Worth Nelson from East Village Magazine will be joining our roundtable regulars Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter so be sure to tune in for that we'll be right back
2: Hello out there everybody it's me Tigger, T-I-W-G-R that spells Tigger and don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy (laughs) hoo
6: Alicia, Elena, Gabriella, Erica.
7: And the Tom Sumner Program.
2: This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
7: Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation with uh, the author of a new historic novel called The New Land, David O. Stewart. He joins me by phone. David, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that.
2: Not a, pl- not a problem.
7: <laughs> the, um, I mentioned just before the break that the, the full title of, uh, of this novel is um, The New Land, um, and it's book one of the Overstreet Saga. Um, is this part of a trilogy, the beginning of a series? Um, you mentioned in the last segment, for example, David, that there are lots of these stories.
2: Yeah, it, it is a trilogy. Uh, the second book, which comes out in May, uh, is it, focused on the Civil War period and, and after that. Uh and that's actually the story that first hooked me on these family stories of my mother's. She she told a tale that she had this ring that she always wore that I loved and I asked her where it came from and she said, Well, it had been taken off a, a dead union soldier on the battlefield. And for a kid who loved history, that was just the most romantic story <laughs> of course you can imagine. Um and I, I got hooked, and I tried to figure out what actually happened. And I did track him down. There was such a guy. Um, he didn't die on the battlefield, <laughs> and that certainly wasn't his ring. <laughs> but, you know, Mom told good stories, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, she, she, she got me engaged, and, and I think that was the game.
7: Well, David, some stories get better with age.
2: They absolutely <laughs> do. Um, and that, that's why I write fiction. Uh, you know, I do a lot of straight history, and I love it. But there are other times you just, you know, using your imagination, uh, getting inside characters is just uh, just more fun.
7: How do you go about the, the research that goes into this? Because in order to make it engaging and believable, you know, some of the historic, uh, uh, what, landmarks, I guess, or, or guideposts, you know, have to be based in, in real history. Where uh, How do you go about finding these things that aren't part of everyday historical knowledge?
2: That's a great question, um, and it is the challenge. I, I really believe in place. In going to the place I'm writing about and feeling what it's like, it, it's almost a sort of metaphysical experience. I, I I don't take a lot of notes usually. I'll take a few, but just to get a sense of the place, what the air feels like, what the vistas are like, um, and you know how do people move and, and act. You know, I, I chat with people, but I'm not interviewing them. I'm just sort of getting to know them a little because. People in different parts of the country have have different, you know, uh, attitudes and practices. So that's very important. I do look for written sources too. Um, I was lucky. This uh, story, the the new land, the one that just issued, uh, begins and mostly uh, occurs on the coast of Maine in a, what is now a very small town called Walderboro. but. There was a fellow who wrote an amazingly detailed history of the town, it's two volumes, and it's quite good. So, you know, I didn't, you know, use all the stuff that's there or even reproduce it, but it gave me a sense for what their lives were like, which was very valuable. Um, And, you know, the sort of crises they had. I mean, this was a small community, but they had religious disagreements. when it came time for the Revolutionary War, you know, a lot of these immigrants sort of couldn't figure out why they would go to war over this. I mean, their lives were actually a lot better than they had been in the old country, and you know, they didn't—they weren't crazy about the British, but wasn't a reason to go off and fight and die. So, that sort of stress within a community—it's—it's uh, it's natural. I mean, it happens. Uh, in, in, in most situations. And it, it's really helpful to understand ha- how that happened.
7: Now, you said this was a trilogy and this book, um, The New Land, is is book one of the Overstreet Saga. And then it sounds like book two jumps to the Civil War. Um, is it? Is there something sequential that ties pre-colonial Maine to the Civil War?
8: Uh,
2: it's just members of the family. They're descendants. Oh, okay. you know, they don't know each other. Um, but they're all overstreets, um, which is... You know, the, my my mother's family—they were overlocks. I changed the name a little bit so my cousins could deny any involvement if, if they were embarrassed. <laughs> uh, you changed the
7: names to protect the innocent, right?
2: I did. I uh, and the guilty, uh, but it's uh, so there's—they're recognizable. They're in the same place. They're still in Maine. Uh, They have some qualities that are the same but the times are very different and the situation's different but there are moments of crisis that's what i think is gripping that's what is the most compelling story and that's what i know most about and and volume three is set in world war ii uh, and the family has actually moved to the midwest by then they they live in chicago uh, and that's called uh, the resolute land Uh, and that was in some ways the toughest one to write because there were characters inspired by my mother and her two brothers, and I actually knew them. Uh, not, you know, my uncles I didn't know very well, but I wanted them to be fictional characters, not an attempt to capture the real person. So, I, I had to sort of put that out of my mind.
7: Can you can you really avoid that when you're basing characters on on real people, especially in a case where? you know the people, can you, can you still turn them into fictional characters? It's a lot easier when you're going back to, you know, pre-colonial Maine.
2: Right. The The earlier characters, I, in the earlier books I just made up, um, these, uh, these characters, I mean the answer to your question is yes and no. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can change things. I can make them not the same. Uh but to be honest, they may have qualities that work very well for the story that I, I, I want to retain uh and and that uh it it is a virtue um there you know one of the things my mother had very colorful language um, she used a lot of slang and she had a remarkable vocabulary and you know I would never. Let go of that. I mean, that's that's a terrific thing to have as a character, uh, for for a character to have in your book. And you know, one of the ways, one of the things you always worry about is, you know, gee, did people use that word back in 1944 or in 1863? And there are ways to try to figure that out. But for the World War II sequence, I could just try to imagine my mother saying it. If if I could imagine her saying it, then it was okay.
7: (laughs) That's that's funny. Um, the you know and it's it's funny too, David, because I've wondered about certain language and certain concepts, you know we have this whitewashed version of history, especially in families going back multiple generations, and it's difficult to imagine those people as you know having regular lives
2: we. Tend not to understand well their their daily life, uh, you know. In in the new land, the one that's just coming out today, uh, they uh, they come and they, you know. There's nothing but forest. You know, uh, what, where do you start building? I had to learn about how people built, you know, basic huts, and you know what were the tools they used in which were. Way more limited than what we have, and how did they use them, and how did they feed themselves uh, in a country where there was no real market? I mean, this, the, you know, Maine was 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 frontier. If you didn't produce the food, you didn't eat. So that is, it's a great exploration. I think I think it's something that readers enjoy is, is trying to imagine. Uh, what life was like in a different situation. Think about, you know, how would that have affected them? And and it helps explain a lot of the stories sometimes. you know, basic things like they, you know, if they got sick, um, they only got better if they, if they outlived the disease. Um, and they, there, there was really no medicine of, of any usefulness. And uh, that level of powerlessness was pretty tough on all of them.
7: Yeah, I just talked to a guy who would written a book about uh, doctors and surgeons during the Revolutionary War. <laughs> and some of the methods and practices are uh, pretty scary, actually.
2: Um, well, they they killed as many as they healed.
7: <laughs> that's true. That's that's actually true. Um, yeah. But I, I ask a lot of writers this question, uh, especially when they're writing fiction, whether it's historical fiction or not. Is, is which comes first, the, the characters and you come up with things that would happen to them or the story and then you cast the story with characters that would likely find themselves in that situation. And it sounds to me like it's, it's sort of story first for you.
2: I, I think it is. I, I, in this instance, and frankly in the first three novels I did, the Deception books, I had a notion of what the story would be, and I, I did think of characters who were uh, inspired by historical figures. And then I had to dig deeper because we, you know, a, a, a character in a novel needs an interior life, needs to have emotions and disappointments and triumphs and uh, stresses. And, you know, we we don't have that about most historical characters, except for the most confessional writers of diaries. And and so that's where you fill in the blanks. And you can figure this out. I mean, my principal character in the New Land is a soldier. And he's been trained as a soldier. Well, there are certain qualities of a soldier, and he was someone who had served for some time. Um, There are qualities of a soldier you would expect. Uh, He can surprise you in a circumstance, and that's great. But there are also ways in which you can, you know, you would expect him to be uh, disciplined, uh, have an instinct to being methodical, uh, and have a problem possibly controlling his temper at times.
7: What is it about this family especially starting with the, with this first book the new land what is it about this family that you think will resonate with contemporary readers
2: you know i think it's honestly the aspirations and, and the hardships you know the the loss and the, and the triumphs i mean it is an immigrant story and that is the american story i mean they're i mean what When I was trying to figure out what really happened when I was still a boy, I mean, I understood that everybody in this country, except for the uh, Indian tribes, came from somewhere else. And that is a a powerful part of our experience, which I don't think you lose. Uh, You know, I, I knew my grandparents in my father's family, who were, you know, immigrants from Eastern Europe. Uh, My mother's other ancestors were were Irish and came over uh, in the 19th century. They all had some basic experiences that were the same, of, you know, being lost, not knowing what to do, of facing crisis, of having to pull together. Um, And I think that's a story that does survive for us. You, You see new stories that are being written about recent immigrants, they have those same themes. I mean, that's, that's a, an incredibly molding experience, and I think it's a powerful one that, that speaks to the human condition.
7: At what point uh, does a, a family like the Overstreet family, when they, when they land in Maine and start building their life there, at, at what point do they become American?
2: Well, that's a great question because, and I had to struggle with that, I think the children who are born in this country are, are different. Uh, and it's not just language, it's just their experience is different, and, and it has to be. Uh, and I, I could see that with my father and his parents, which were the immediate um immigrants. Uh, my wife's dad uh, was an immigrant from Sweden, and his attitudes were, were different, uh, different from mine, different from hers. Uh, so I think that that first generation that's born here and grows up here, uh, that's when you, you begin finding you've got a, a different uh, animal here. And they have to still talk to each other. <laughs> still have to understand each other. Uh, the younger ones can facilitate the lives of the older ones, but they also have you know they, they don't always uh, take the same view. I mean there is some generational conflict in my story, uh, which I think was is what you always get.:
7: The connection to, um, to this land is is very different for the characters in your second book and your third book but in this first book um the new land how do the the people that are settling at that time identify or or do they are they just people trying to scratch out a life
2: well i I chose the title because um, what I discovered about most German immigrants in the 18th century, and this changed in the next century. But In the 18th century, most of the Germans came here for land. Um, The aristocrats, the rich people back home, owned all the land, and it was very hard to get a hold of it. Uh, And so that's what, you know, the New World, they thought, the land was here, and you know they didn't think much about uh, the Indian tribes who were here, uh, and that I think was a real spur. An irony, which not lost on anybody who who settled in Maine, was when you got here, the land wasn't very good. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> they, they they quickly turned out uh, decided that well, gee, we don't we can't raise very you know very good crops, but got all this these trees you know what can we do with the trees um, you know there were great forests there and so uh, you get a lot of lumberjacks you get a lot of uh, uh, carpenters and shipbuilders uh, because they're using the resources that are there
7: well that makes sense you know you've got me really curious David about the um, uh, the deception books And and I'm embarrassed to admit, David, that this is the first I'm hearing of him. And I'm absolutely fascinated by all three. Um, So I'm going to be doing a deep dive here pretty soon on David Stewart. But um, for people listening, and I, I do this with all the guests I have on the show, David, is give you an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future do you have a website
2: sure it it's david o stewart one word dot com uh S-T-E-W-A-R-T. uh and there's more on there about me than anybody would want to know except, except my 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 mother probably um <laughs> and uh you know the the books are all for sale uh through online outlets uh uh bookshop.org or Amazon or Barnes & Noble uh, and and local bookstores can uh, get them as well. Uh, the, they tend to carry on the shelf only the most recent books uh, so uh, for the other books uh, the online resources are, are more reliable.
7: Have you been making notes on, on future pro- projects beyond the Overstreet saga?
2: Of course. Uh, no writer does anything except try to figure out what he's going to do next.
7: (laughs) (laughs) Are you having any luck with that, David?
2: (laughs) Uh, I got to say there's nothing ready for prime time. Uh, I've run through a couple of subjects that, you know, you decide, well, actually, that's a good idea, but not for me, or you decide, well, actually, that wasn't a very good idea. So, uh, or or stories that are hard to write just because you don't have good resources or you just something about it is holding you back. So I'm still uh looking, you know, I've, I've got two more books coming out in the next uh, 8 months or 10 months, so it, it's a pretty busy time uh, anyway. Well, I uh, I'll find something. <laughs>
7: I'm, I don't doubt that a bit, David. Um I, I saw you referred to as best-selling historian and storyteller. And I wanted we just got a couple of minutes left, but I wanted to ask you about that is um, do you think of yourself as a storyteller and is that something that runs in the family? You said your mother used to tell stories.
2: Well, Mom was a heck of a storyteller and I would describe her that way. And, you know, it drove us crazy when we were kids because she did make stuff up. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> they'd be stories stories about us and, you know, we'd sit there and say, Mom, that's not true. <laughs> she, she couldn't have cared less. Um, and it's something, and it's a funny connection to make, maybe. But as a trial lawyer, you're telling a story. Now you're confined by the facts; you can't make those up. But what you have to explain to the jury, or to the judge, or the court is how did this happen? You know, ideally, you prove how it happened so your client wasn't at fault, or, frankly, is entitled to uh, prevail. Um. But you have to put that together as a story. So I think of that as actually great training for for writing because that's, of course, what you are doing uh, when you ask somebody to read a book. Because you're, you're saying, you know, sit down, I'm going to tell you a story, and it's a good one. Uh, and, you know, both fiction and nonfiction. Uh, I do think of myself as uh, putting together stories that people can, first of all, enjoy, but second, you know, walk away from uh, feeling that they've they've got a little better understanding of themselves, their world and, and uh people around them. Is the
7: art of storytelling in danger?
2: I, I think not really in danger. I, you know, we do have uh these powerful visual media. Uh the T V and uh uh, videos and all of those which uh, are shortcuts and i'm sometimes dazzled by how a skilled uh, uh, creator of uh, some film can tell a story with shifting images in about two minutes <laughs> That would have taken 30 pages uh or, or actors can tell a story with a gesture I mean, there can be a simple gesture and an expression that would take me a page to describe. So there are different ways to tell a story. But I think there remains a real power in the word because you get to create that picture in your own head. And I am speaking to you directly into your mind. I'm
7: well, whispering David, in your ear. David, we have to end it there, but it's been a sure. real pleasure. Thanks for uh, being here.
3: and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at Michigan.gov slash COVIDVaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. call the Foot River Watershed Coalition at 810 767
0: The time of summer program Happy
6: Holidays
4: from
7: and the Tom Sumner Program.
5: Hey, this
4: is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom
8: Sumner Program.
0: Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Programme.
5: Now, in order for you to understand what I'm going to do next, I have to go way back and speak about my great-grandfather, whom we traced back to Marie Antoinette. As a matter of fact, my great-grandmother traced him back there a couple of (laughs) days. But he was partly responsible for the birth of my grandfather. He thought... My grandfather was born in Denmark. He was Danish after his mother and Swedish after a friend of his father's. (laughs) He was one of the great inventors of his time. He invented the burglar alarm, which unfortunately was stolen from him. (laughs) He was a brilliant man. He was, among other things, a Ph.D., just a <laughs> So was his wife. However, <laughs> besides being a brilliant <laughs> he also was a great chemist. He was the one who invented the cure for which there was no disease in the <laughs> Unfortunately, his wife later caught the cure and died. <laughs> he was a strange personality. He always experimented with something. Once he, uh, he crossed an Idaho potato with a sponge. Imagine that silly idea. It tasted horrible but it sure held a lot of gravy. (laughs) I think his greatest invention was a soft drink, which he called four up. But it wasn't successful at all. So he invented five up. But still it didn't click, you know. Then came six up. But still nobody liked it. So he gave up and died heartbroken a couple of weeks later. But little did he know how close he came. (laughs) (laughs) Then I was born, and when that happened, my parents were, well, they were not poor, but they didn't have any money. So I was actually born at home. And when my mother saw me, she was taken to the hospital. (laughs) One day, when I was four years old, my father came home and he found me in the living room in front of a roaring fire, which made him very angry because we didn't have a fireplace. (laughs) There I sat, and here my father stood, burning up. (laughs) He pointed at me. See, my father was left-handed. He always pointed this way. I was sitting on the other side. (laughs) So my father said, Borger. He didn't know my first name. (laughs) See, in my father's family, we had a little trouble up here. In the head. My father was all right, but his two brothers... My male uncles. <laughs> you yes. know, in Denmark, we always distinguish, you know. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with the fact that we have three sexes over there. <laughs> male, female, and convertible. fact, I was supposed to have been back to Denmark this summer, but I ain't going. <laughs> oh, once I made up my mind what I was going to be, and that's the way it's going to be. <laughs> well, what I meant to tell you before was, and this is not a joke, this is really a fact, that Two weeks ago, we celebrated my uncle's 103rd birthday. Isn't that something? Thank you very much. 103rd birthday. Unfortunately, he wasn't present. (laughs) How could he be? He died when he was 29. But what I meant to say was that he was the one who went crazy. And his mother used to say that he went crazy because he never got the woman he loved. And that's a lot of nonsense because his brother went just as crazy. And he got her.
6: Of Christmas my true love gave to me a partridge in a pear tree On the second day of Christmas my true love sent to me two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree On the third day of Christmas my true love gave to me Three French hens, two turtle doves, And a partridge in a pear tree. On the fourth day of Christmas my true love gave to me Four calling birds, three French hens, Two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. On the fifth day of Christmas my true love gave to me Five gold. Five golden rings. Four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. On the ninth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me nine ladies waiting, eight maids a-milking, seven swans a-swimming, six geese are laying five golden reeds. Four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. On the tenth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me ten lords a leaping, nine ladies waiting, eight maids a milking, seven swans a swimming, six geese a laying, five golden. Leaves. Four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. On the eleventh day of Christmas my true love gave to me eleven pipers piping, ten birds a-leaping, nine ladies waiting, eight maids a-milking, seven swans a-swimming, six geese a-laying, five golden reeds. Birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. On the twelfth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me twelve drummers drumming, eleven pipers piping, ten lords a leaping, nine ladies waiting, eight maids a milking, seven swans a swimming, six geese a laying, five golden rings Four calling birds. And hens, two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear I gotta stop a minute.
0: The Time Summer Program.com
8: you a merry Christmas from the Tom Sumner
6: show oh
4: yeah you pilots get off of my lawn we're trying to do a radio show down here it's a Tom Sumner program don't you know Come on! Come on, get out of here!